Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. This week, I was watching a Christmas movie with my kids. You know, one of those pretty cheesy uh Christmas movies that everybody likes to watch during this time. And, and in that movie, there was a, a scene early on where the mom told her kids, you know what I want this Christmas? I want you two to get along. Isn't that what we associate with Christmas season? Right? Regardless of our faith commitments, we tend to think of it as a time of peace and harmony. Today, we're going to look at the gift of peace as we continue this Christmas timeline series. But I want to ask you, what comes to mind when you think of the night of Jesus' birth? For most of us, we've become accustomed to assuming that Mary and Joseph struggled to find a place to stay when they arrived in Bethlehem, and then suddenly they gave birth to Jesus, that it all happened in one hectic night. Our movies and Christmas pageants, they frequently portray this as a stressful, running-out-of-time type of situation in which Mary and Joseph find themselves out in a barn, all alone welcoming the baby Jesus. But this isn't exactly what the Bible depicts. I want you to listen just to two verses that we're going to look at today that that describe the scene of that night. Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, While they were there, that's in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Okay? So now think about what we just heard. We, we tend to read this and impose that image that I just described earlier uh, on top of how this all went down. We, we read this and we can then make some assumptions that, oh, it must have been this way or that way. But how would it have gone, uh, how, how would somebody reading this account, if they were from this time and, and lived in this area, how would they read this? Well, what happens if we take into account the cultural traditions of the day and, and read this again with the eyes of those who are there? And if we do that, we find a bit of a different story. I want to highlight three differences that show up if we begin to look at this through Middle Eastern eyes, for example. Okay, One, the first difference is they probably weren't in a hurry. Joseph would likely have found a place to stay in plenty of time. Now, uh, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a, a crowded spot there. Bethlehem was crowded, but the likelihood is he had, he had found a place to stay in plenty of time. It just so happened that so many others had also made plans to be there, that there wasn't a lot of room. And even if he hadn't found something that early on, they weren't far from Elizabeth and Zechariah's house, so they probably could have gone there if needed. And the second major difference is they weren't out in a barn. Okay, Joseph and Mary uh, found lodging in a private home in Bethlehem, that, That's a, as opposed to a commercial inn. Now, we tend to think of that Christmas night as them knocking on the door of the, you know, La Quinta Bethlehem and the uh, Super 8 Bethlehem and the Hampton Inn Bethlehem and, and finding that nobody would take them, that all the, the rooms were booked. But that's not exactly what's going on. The word Luke uses in, in chapter 2, verse 7 there for inn is catalima which means upper room. 
It was a space for guests in a private room. It was in a catalima that Jesus and his disciples ate the Last Supper. So there was no room in, in those catalimas, in those upper rooms in private residences. And along with that, there were commercial inns, and those were likely full as well. So all the guest spaces in private homes were full. Um, and so instead of private family, some family there in Bethlehem offered Mary and Joseph their space in which the animals were kept. Okay, but that would have been in the home. It, it would have looked something like this. I want you to see this picture. This is a, a picture of a, a typical first century Israelite home. And you'll see at the bottom is a spot where they would have kept their animals. They, they would have been in the house with them. Now, imagine this probably wasn't the, the greatest setup. I don't know about you, but having a goat living inside my house doesn't sound like a great idea. But that's kind of how this went. And so uh, what happens is they say, you know what, we, we don't have this upper room, we don't have a, a space there for you to sleep, but we'll let you stay on the bottom floor. It's where we also house the, the sheep and the goats and you know what our, our family uh, animals, uh, but you guys can stay there. So they make a place for Joseph and Mary in a home. Here's the third difference is that they probably weren't the only other humans there when Jesus was born. Luke 2.7 says she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in li uh, lightly in cloth or tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger. Now, I, I guess that sounds like she was alone. It makes it sound like she was alone, that she did all of this all by herself. Maybe Joseph's there kind of lending a hand. But but if we were in this time, we'd understand it probably went much differently. Uh, according to cultural norms, she was probably surrounded by the women of that house and neighboring homes. It, it's likely that, um, that when other women saw and heard that it was time for Mary to deliver her baby, they, they came to her aid. It, it's unlikely that they would have just left her unattended as Jesus was welcomed into the world. Uh, now, I said last week, though, that this was a hassle, and it was. Okay, this is different, but it was a hassle. And if we read the Bible with the eyes of those who lived it, we'd see that the stress and the strain of these events was different from our traditional view, but it was actually much more difficult. In fact, if we zoom out and we see how this birth takes place in the larger picture of redemption, we see that there is a ton at stake in that birth, a ton at stake, just that, that there's a weight to this that Mary and Joseph would have felt deeply. There was still a great hassle. And what's more is that we can only understand the peace of Christmas when we understand the conflict that made Christmas necessary. I want you to watch this short video. It's called, There's a Dragon in My Nativity. Some of you may remember it. I believe I showed it last year, but I, I love it. I think it's really helpful in seeing the big picture of what is at stake at Christmas. So take a look. There's a dragon in my nativity, dreadful and immense. The shepherds quake, the wise men shake, and spill their frankincense. The cattle are alone, and the baby is awake, while Joe and Mary tremble. Oh, this must be some mistake. There's a dragon over Bethlehem. I don't know how he came. I didn't think a donkey could have borne the dragon's frame. 
I don't believe the census had been called for such as him. And I'm certain that when Dragon knocked, no room was at the inn. There's a dragon by the stable. I don't know why he's there. He hasn't bought a present, and he only seems to glare. He hovers over David's town, that still beneath him lies. Yet no one's sleep is dreamless, underneath his piercing eyes. This dragon isn't visible, with ordinary sight. You cannot snap a selfie, or televise his flight. Unseen he stands for every power that stands against the earth. The death, disease and darkness, overshadowing each birth. This dragon is an enemy of all that's good and true. This monster lies and steals and kills. He's coming after you. Above each crib, the dragon hovers, sure to swallow whole. Rulers, empires, beauty, joy, a flesh and blood black hole. But dragons always meet their match. They always meet their doom. A hero rises to the fight to cast them into gloom. And so at this nativity arose another player, the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was a dragon slayer. He'd come to fight through Hera's plots, through dangers big and small. He took on evil, sickness, death, and triumphed over all. A dragon or a baby? Just who would win the fight? It wasn't really fair, you see. The child was a knight from high above and long before. He knew what must be done. He knew the dragon waiting here. And still, he chose to come. There's a dragon in my nativity, a fierce and monstrous danger. But fierce is still the bravery and love within the manger. As we consider the birth of Jesus, this night when Jesus was born, as we consider that in terms of this larger story of redemption and, and consider the, the realities of what that time would have been like for Mary and Joseph and Jesus, we can say first off that those present at the birth of Jesus, what they heard was the battle cry of a prince who would win lasting peace. We think about what happened that night. That was when Jesus breathed his first of, of our air, not just swimming in the womb of his mother, but, but took a breath. And he let out that cry that babies do when they're born. It was a battle cry because he is a prince who would win lasting peace. We can go all over the scriptures to see how it points to this truth. But I want to take us to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. They told us what would happen. We were told what would happen when this Savior came. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, A child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on 
and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. That's what was being accomplished when Jesus was born. The Prince of Peace was born. It was a declaration that evil would not win. And then we look farther and we see that not only was that told that that's who he would be. We were told what would happen. We saw what would happen on the cross, that that baby would grow to be a man who would go to the cross. Psalm chapter 22 is a prophecy of what would happen to the one who would be the Messiah. It's a, it's, these words are put into Jesus' mouth on the cross. It says, they open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is what takes place in in Jesus' life. That baby born in a trough is killed on a cross. In fact, author Mike Cosper talking about the violence of Christmas and the irony of what takes place at his birth says this, the baby took his first nap in a feeding trough and 33 years later, his death would be likened to being torn apart by wild animals. There's this certain violence that's involved in the Christmas story. And and we're told that that's what happened. And we're also, though, told what will happen as a result of the coming of Jesus. Romans 16.20, we're told the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So there's a promise that the peace that was won by Jesus on the cross will have this future effect in which someday that dragon will finally and forever be destroyed. His his day has ended. He he has been defeated. But there is coming a day when he will be destroyed. And so when we think of Christmas, we need to think in terms of this. As we think of the events of the night of his birth, we must keep in mind that Jesus came into a world filled with conflict in order to win peace. But you ask, well, what is peace? We've already looked at, in trying to answer that question, I've looked at, well, how does it come? Where where does it come from? It it comes through Jesus. But uh, another way for us to understand what is peace is to look at what it requires and what it does. That's what I want us to see the remainder of our time is, what does peace require and what does it do? So, So what does it require? Peace requires not just removing conflict, but restoring wholeness. Peace requires not just removing conflict, but restoring wholeness. We tend to think of peace as the opposite of war. And in a sense, that's right. But see, the presence of war is just a symptom of something missing. When war and conflict are present, that means that there is something tangibly missing. And that is peace. To to bring peace... The, the word, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It's a word that means to make complete or to restore. It's a word that means wholeness. And we see this in all kinds of other ways in which shalom is used to describe other things, not just this idea of peace in terms of relationships, but it's used to describe a number of other things. In Joshua 8.31, the word shalom is used to describe uncut stones. These are shalom stones. They are uncut. They're whole. In Job 5.24, the word shalom is used to describe flocks without anything missing. Flocks that are whole or complete are said to be flocks of shalom. 
In 1 Kings 9.25, the temple is described as finished. That is to say, it is shalomed. It is, it is complete. It is whole. It was what it was supposed to be. And in Exodus 24, in verses 4 and 5, but especially in 5, we see that, that this word shalom is used in terms of to make restitution or to repay. It is to, to bring things about that are, have been, been made wrong, but to fix them, to make them right. And, and so when we talk about peace, when we talk about uh, shalom, we're talking about restoring wholeness, not just stopping the conflict, but restoring what that conflict has destroyed. And, and in this cosmic, lasting sense, peace is not just the absence of conflict, but it is about the presence of God. And so when we talk about re, re, not just removing conflict, but restoring wholeness, what we're talking about is Peace being brought because Jesus has come, because Jesus has shown up. That means that lasting peace is possible. He is the prince who can win that lasting peace, who can not just get the conflict to stop, but to restore what that conflict has destroyed, the brokenness that is a result of the conflict. Which then helps us understand not, not just what the peace of God requires, but what the peace of God does. You see, the peace of God is a gift. It's a gift from Christ that serves in a couple of ways. And we could talk about others, but especially it serves as both a guardian and a ruler. The peace of God is both a guardian and a ruler, but it's a gift. Let's first think about that, right? It's, it's a gift. It's something that comes from God that gives us peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gift that God gives us through Christ. As he justifies us, he makes us right with God, and we have peace with him. That means that not only is the conflict between us and God destroyed, but we are, our relationship with him is restored. We're told that even more fully in Romans 6, 5, 6 through 11. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Again, this is a gift. God comes to us. He, he comes to us while we are still sinners, while we are still throwing our fists at God, standing in opposition to him. And he says, I'm going to come and die, not for those who are, are good, not because none of you are good, but I'm going to come to deliver my enemies from my just wrath, from, from the, the right thing, which is to eradicate sin. I'm going to make it possible for those who have perpetrated sin against me to be reconciled to me, to restore that relationship that sin has destroyed. 
This is the gift of God. We have peace with God. That's part of what it means to know the peace of God, is that we have peace with God. But also that peace of God allows us to have peace with others. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, tell us about this change that takes place because of Christ. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. See, what Jesus does in, in being that prince of peace who would go to the cross and, and give his life to save us, what he's doing there is, again, reconciling us vertically with God. But that peace that he brings also is meant to reconcile us with one another, to make a way for us to be brought into the family of God and know God together as one people. We have that kind of peace with God. So uh, uh, once again, the removal, there is a removal of conflict, but there's not just getting rid of the conflict, there's the presence of wholeness. God intends that as we know and walk in his peace, that we will experience the, the fullness, the completeness that is meant to be found in walking with him and walking with one another as we follow our Lord and Savior. And so a couple of practical ways to think about the peace of God and what it needs to, to do in our lives. Again, it is both a guard and a ruler. So the first thing is, let the peace of God guard against the subtle violence of worry. I want to encourage you, let the peace of God, this is what the scriptures tell us, is to let the peace of God guard against the subtle violence of worry. And you say, what do you mean the subtle violence of worry? Well, I want us to understand that, that that's what worry is. It, it is subtly violent. And, and this tends to be a season where we can get into a lot of worry. Now, that, that's true any time. But especially in this season, we tend to, to deal with a lot of worry. And, and, and what happens is there's this conflict with ourselves as we worry about what's going to happen and what, this is, what that relationship's going to be like or what that event's going to go down, how it's going to go down, what we're going to do now because COVID's changing, how we have to do all these different things. There, there's this conflict with self that develops. And, and it leaves us with uncertain action. How do I do this? How am I going to do that? Well, what's that going to take? We get into this, this worry and it, it eats at us. It's these, these little slices at our, our goodwill, at, our, 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 at what makes us feel secure. And we, we start to, to go down. We, you know, we are emotionally, we're depleted. Physically, we become depleted because of this worry. There's a subtle violence to that. There's also conflict with God. We, we get into this spot where we say, well, I want to trust God, but we we start to lack trust because worry it starts to become bigger. We, we start to think about the worry and all the things that are piling up in our minds uh, more than the things that God has promised. We said this last week. We, we tend to uh, listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. And, and what the, the hope of God is meant to do is help us to be able to talk to ourselves and remind ourselves that the worry that we're dealing with, the, the concerns that we have are not bigger than the capability of our God to work in the midst of our circumstances. And so the peace of God, the peace that we have with God and with others, 
is meant to be a guard to protect us against the subtle violence of worry, against these, these constant cuts that, again, deplete us emotionally and physically as we give in to worry. Philippians 4, 6-7 tells us about this. We're told, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that. How does the peace of God guard us? It guards us when we come to God in the midst of our, our, our potential worries, and we bring those to Him. Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, we present our requests to God. And you say, well, well but yeah, that, that gives us a peace with God. Yes, it does. In fact, it says a peace with God that surpasses understanding. You say, how is that possible? I, I haven't experienced that kind of peace. Well, again, it comes as we lay these things down before God. But I want to tell you a story of one man who, who knew that kind of peace that surpasses understanding. Here's a picture of uh, an illustration of Guido de Bray. He was the writer of the Belgic Confession, and he was imprisoned uh, for his faith, for his uh, Reformed and Protestant faith. He, he wrote a letter to his wife from what, a prison known as the Black Hole. You see that picture of him in chains. But I want you to hear, and I want you to read along with me, this letter that he writes to his wife, who he knows is, is potentially racked with worry in the midst of uh, this grave difficulty that Guido would face. In fact, he, will be, he, he was executed for his faith. He's one of those men of whom the world is not worthy. But listen to what he says to his wife. My dear and well-beloved wife in our Lord Jesus, your grief and anguish are the cause of my writing you this letter. I most earnestly pray you not to be grieved beyond measure. We knew when we married that we might not have many years together, and the Lord has graciously, graciously given us seven. Let his good will be done. Moreover, consider that I have not fallen into the hands of my enemies by chance, but by the providence of God. All these considerations have made my heart glad and peaceful. And I pray you, my dear and faithful companion, to be glad with me and to thank the good God for what he is doing, for he does nothing but what is altogether good and right. I pray you then to be comforted in the Lord, to commit yourself and your affairs to him. He is the husband of the widow and the father of the fatherless, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a man who knew a kind of peace that surpasses understanding. We hear that and you think, man, how could he have such faith in the midst of such grave trials? Because he did exactly what we're told in Philippians 4, 6-7, through 7, the exact thing he is imploring his wife to do, to present our requests to God with gratitude, to find what is there to be thankful for in the midst of all of this. And because he does that, because he walked with God in faith, he experienced this kind of peace that surpasses Understanding, And that's the kind of peace that is available to all of us who follow Christ. Because that kind of peace is a guard. And it will protect you from the subtle violence of worry. But that peace is also a ruler. The peace is also a ruler. The peace of God, I, I want to encourage you to let the peace of God rule over your relationships. 
Let the peace of God rule over your relationships. Colossians 3, 12 through 15, we're told this very thing. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. See, again, we're, we're called to, uh, to let the peace of Christ do what it does. In this case, it is to rule over our relationships. The holidays could be a time where there's a lot of turmoil in our relationships. We're around people in different ways. Even if we can't be with them in person, there's a lot that gets drawn up during this season. I want to encourage you to make it a practice of, of being a peacemaker. We're told that the people of God, the children of God, are peacemakers. And that's what we're called to, to, to forgive as we have been forgiven, to look for ways in which we can bring peace and I think helpful here is, are the words of Thomas Paine. Now, Thomas Paine, you may recognize, he was a revolutionary as part of bringing our country into existence. But he was in no way a Christian. In fact, he was opposed to a lot of Christian ideals. But he makes a statement that exactly fits with, uh, with Christian virtue. He says this, in part, it's a part of a larger quote, but he says this, If there must be trouble, let it be in my day that my child may have peace. His point was that if there is trouble, if there are going to be difficulties, if there's going to be conflict, then he wants to take it upon himself to deal with that conflict, to deal with that trouble as a gift passed on to his children. And so it is for us. I would ask us, are, are we looking at, are, are there conflicts that we're dealing with that we're, we're not dealing with? That, that in some way or another we're saying, I'm not going to deal with that. I'll let my kids deal with it, or I'll let somebody else who will come after me deal with it. Instead, you and I are called to be the kind of peacemakers who will be proactive to jump into the fray and figure out how can we, if there must be trouble, deal with it now so that our children may have peace. So that the people who come behind us, not you know, maybe figuratively our children, the people that come after us, would have peace. That's the kind of virtue that Christ calls us to. That's the kind of virtue that we're called to there in Colossians chapter 3, to deal with trouble as it comes so that others and ourselves can enjoy peace now. Romans 12, 18, we're told, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this is such an important verse. It's such an important reminder because it, it, we're told there that there's going to be times where as far as it depends on us, we can't produce peace. But we need to do what we can when we can, as we have opportunity. And as far as it depends on us, we are to live at peace with everyone. We are to be peacemakers. We're to let the peace of Christ rule over our relationships. And so I, I want to, in light of this, in light of, of the, the peace that Christ has brought, uh, in light of the kind of wholeness that peace requires. And in light of the fact that this is a gift that is meant to guard us and rule over us, I want to encourage us to be peacemakers, 
to seek out ways in which you can reconcile relationships during this holiday season. Where, where is it? Where is that pressure point? Where is there a conflict that needs to be dealt with? And I want to encourage you as well to, to grow. Let this season be a time of growing in prayer. We talked about habits last week, that, that hope grows in the midst of our habits, through our habits. So again, I want to encourage you, if you've not started that Advent daily devotional guide that we referenced last week, to start it now or to find one that you will read along through this season of Advent to increase your time with the Lord. And and take time especially. If you want to let the, the peace of God guard your heart, then take time to pray. Maybe take up that idea from the common rule to spend three different times a day in kneeling prayer. But figure out strategies with the help of God and the Holy Spirit working in you to let the peace of Christ guard your heart from worry, from the subtle violence of worry. This is what God calls us to, but this is what God provides for us, the gift he gives to us through Christ. Next week, we're going to continue this Christmas timeline series. We're going to continue and pick up in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And look at the shepherds. Look at this this event through the eyes of the shepherds and find out what is the surprise that comes with joy. I hope you'll join us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the giver of every good gift, including peace, we thank you. We thank you for our Prince, Jesus, who has come to lay down his life, to win for us, everlasting peace, to not only gain for us the promise that conflict will someday be over, but that promise that someday things will be restored and made whole and complete. I pray that that hope, the, the hope of that peace, will both serve as a ruler and guard and guardian in our lives. Lord, help us to be peacemakers Help us to draw near to you, to to experience the reality of a peace that surpasses all understanding. We need your help, Lord, and we ask for it in Christ's name, for your glory and for the good of people everywhere. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day.